And after a summer break, we're back to class in the bunker. It is good to have you here. I appreciate you uh, joining us. This is uh, the second week of uh, September, and uh, we've taken a summer break, and now we're ready to, to roll and get back to uh, our class. There were some thoughts at some point that we might be uh, back in a classroom, which has been a very hard decision uh, because I really enjoyed the, the, the give and take that we're able to do. I just came back from BYU Education Week and, and teaching there and love having that, that class there. But the problem is, is that as we have developed this class, the class in the bunker, that has grown so much larger than what we ever had in the, the chapel that we're having, those are some hard decisions we have to make. But with the resurgence of COVID, made this choice much easier and here we are in the bunker. So, so welcome, uh, glad you're here. Uh, just as a reminder also that uh, at, when I get done, I always post this, this class on YouTube. So if you wanna be able to to take a look at it later, you can do that. It will also be on Apple Podcast for LDS discussions. Uh, so if you can, you want to listen to the class while you're running around and working and driving, and uh, we are everywhere, and and we're going to be there for that. Okay. So that said, uh, welcome back. Um, so I want to start uh, today with a question as we lead into this very first class of a of a brand new semester. Um, and it's this question. Can you do things that provoke our Heavenly Father into responding in anger? Are there things that you do that make Him mad? And are there things that you might do that make Him mad enough to react to you by Him doing something? You know, uh, He told Joseph Smith, Vengeance is mine. Well, vengeance sounds like a, a little, it's always a little edgy. It's a little more angry. Um, and so I think sometimes we fear in some of the things that we do that I'm going to make God mad. And he has the power to make my life pretty miserable, so don't make Dad mad. Uh, certainly those that I've worked with that have some, some uh, abuse background with maybe uh, abusive male figures in their life tend to th want to think about an angry God and trying to not to make him mad. And, and as we're going to talk about in the Old Testament, there was a sense of that, that we can, do, we can make God mad at us. Uh, and certainly Book of Mormon prophets sometimes fell into that same experience. So think about that for a second. Can you do things that, that make our Heavenly Father, a Father, respond in anger? Now, it's easier for us to kind of get into that space, I think, because if you think about it, what happens at, if you have been in, in that parent role? What happens when you've been provoked as a parent? You, you, uh, you're, you're going along your life and you hear a massive window break and you go out to find out that kids have been playing ball in the front yard and you have a football in your living room and a broken window. And we're going to react uh, the, the way that we do. Well, I think we understand, we probably have enough parental common sense, uh, if you will, that uh, angry, provoked parents don't tend to do very well. 
that we're not at our best moments when we have been angrily provoked. For instance, when we have been provoked, we tend to quickly overreact to, to what's going on. Uh, maybe it requires action on our part, but we find ourselves overreacting. We have done more than we really needed to. And so because of that, number two, we tend to punish rather than set up consequences or correct. And when we punish, it's because we're angry and we want vengeance. We want pain. We want not just corrective action, but we're, we're striking out in a way. And unfortunately, sometimes physically, easily, we can do it verbally, but we're just striking out and we're reacting. Um, and then, as we know, when we're doing that, if we are then in that anger and in that response and we're standing there looking at the football and the broken window and, and the, your son's face looking back through the broken window, you're going to say and do things that you'll later regret. Most of the time when I have dealt with uh, parents who have done things out of a sense of anger, almost universally they will say, I wish I had that back. I, I said things I shouldn't have said. I did things I shouldn't have done. And by the way, sometimes those are things that you're going to actually have to go back and recant. It's like saying to a teenager, I can't believe you got in an hour late from curfew. You are going to be grounded for a month. You, for a month. You know, maybe the rest of your life, but certainly for a month or for the rest of the school year, you're going to, you know, you're grounded. And then they say, well, youth conference is next week. And you say, you're grounded for a month except for that. And the fact that you've got to go to school and, you know, and then ultimately you have to say, okay, I said this, but I'm going to have to back away from it. Why? Because I said it when I was mad. And when I say it when I'm mad, okay, not so good. Okay? And in the process of doing that, don't we end up modeling the type of behavior that we don't want them to repeat? <laughs> We're, we don't want them to be doing those kind of things. And so we'll say to them, count, you know, you're mad, count from 10 down to 1 and try and be calm and don't get mad and hit your brother and all those things that we've done. And, and we, we did it because we were provoked and we were reacting out of anger, okay? Um, and, and probably the hardest part of all of this and probably the law where the, the damage is the, the far, far more reaching is the fact that unfortunately, we may be, you can use enough anger and threat and, and authoritarian top-down uh, obedience and in the process of that, you can get them to obey out of fear. But they're not gonna, they're less likely to be obeying out of love. Fear and guilt will cause kids to do what they need to do at the moment, but it doesn't take too long if they still want to do it for them to then find ways to hide it better from you. And we know this. Or we find it ways for them to flinch. Uh, when we walk into a room and we're mad um, or if we've tried to do it by guilt uh, at some point they get mad that they're being 
guilted into doing things they don't want to do and give them get them let them get outside your house let them turn 18 and get outside we're gonna have a harder time getting them to be obedient because they did it out of fear and they're no longer in range of your uh, grounding techniques okay so for all of the reasons we know that provoked parents don't do well we know that <laughs> this is a parental lesson you could teach in Sunday school and do very well so when we think about our father in heaven becoming provoked we have a we have a schema the way that we look at this and say provoking isn't good bad things happen when people when we poke the bear when we have been provoked so uh, let's step back for just a second from that idea of provoking because before we dive into the Old Testament and some of the covenants and promises of the Old Testament that we're going to be looking at um, we want to be able to I think have the right view of the God that we're looking at in the Old Testament and maybe begin to do a little pushback about how we handle that okay so What's happening here is that uh, both uh, the, 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 these next few months, um, as we're looking at these covenants and promises that are found in the Old Testament, continuing what we just did uh, uh, for over the last year, um, we're now a year into this. Um, we're also going to now be studying in January the Old Testament. And, and looking at those things on a come follow me basis and we're going to run into these same issues about the Old Testament and for a lot of people they look at it and say ah, it's the Old Testament dang you know I love the Book of Mormon uh, the Old Testament is like my least favorite because I've never read it and we tend as we've talked about before we tend to use the Old Testament as a buffet of stories and I'm going to go in and grab a moralistic lesson from uh, Abraham sacrificing Isaac or or whatever little Old Testament story we want to grab and then we get the heck out of there about as fast as we can because we're not real comfortable in the Old Testament it's kind of a kind of a weird place to to find yourself and you know, and even if it's like, okay, we're going to go into Isaiah and pull out a couple of things, then we get out. Well, here we are then about to dive into the day-by-day -day study in January of Come Follow Me, looking at Old Testament. Now, of course, because you have been in this class, you're going to be obnoxious in in gospel doctrine and 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 come follow me because you've heard you're learning stuff uh, and so that really is the point of the class right to to be able to be more knowledgeable in gospel doctrine uh, and be obnoxious I hope you are because uh, we're learning stuff and you're taking extra time to to come to know but uh, that said um, let's take a look at there as, as we look at this there is some tremendous obstacles to understanding uh, the Old Testament. One of the reasons why we're so uncomfortable there, and I, I believe that one of the, the biggest obstacles that we struggle with with the Old Testament is understanding the God of the Old Testament versus the Jesus of the, of the Gospels. 
Now, for a lot of uh, faith traditions, they may look at it and say, well, you know, Jesus came to kind of overcome all of that and everything. In our tradition, we go, no, it's the same guy. That Jehovah of the old is Jesus of the new. And we say, how can the, how can the same guy be there? You know, I'm looking at, for instance, the, the, uh, the God that turned uh, a woman into a pillar of salt simply because she looked back at her kids and grandkids burning up in the fire and he turned her into a pillar of salt? How can that be the same one that with such loving compassion healed the sick and and uh, gave the blind sight and, and all of that? And so we be ha- and so sometimes it's uh, we may get caught up in the idea and say, well, yes, that you know he did he did do that, or yeah, that guy that was that steadied the ark, and so he put out his hand to steady the ark, and he was struck dead. Well, there's probably a good reason for that. Um, Without thinking fully through it and saying, here's a man who loved the the Ark of the the Temple, wanted to make sure it didn't land on the ground, and God struck him dead for that. And that's kind of not okay, I don't think. Well, that's one of those problems that we have. Uh, as we're trying to reconcile uh, at that point then, this this God of the Old Testament versus the Jesus of the Gospels. I'm going to talk about it in a second, why I, I, I think we have to be able, there are ways for us to look at that where we begin to reconcile what it is that, that uh, we're truly looking at. Okay. Also, authorship. Authorship is a... Um, is a tough question, and in some ways, it's going to bear it's going to bear some weight here on why it is that sometimes the Old Testament seems inconsistent, and why it is that it sometimes it seems uh, so harsh. and And if we understand this, we we begin to look, I think, a little differently at what we're reading in the Old Testament to try and understand it uh, a bit better. So, for instance, one of the things that we now know uh, through great scholarship is that so much of the Old Testament was being gathered up in scraps and writings uh, that are now completely lost to us. Um, and, and so it's, it's really str- it's hard to struggle to track down the provenance of how uh, when they actually started to assemble and even write the Old Testament... Where, what exactly did they have in front of them uh, to do that? But I would think that most prominent uh, Old Testament scholars in and out of the church are now pretty darn clear that so much of the Old Testament was actually written during the exile, during the time that uh, the Israelites were were in Babylon. And... And if you think about that in, in context of how um, uh, the, the, during the reign of Josiah they'd been trying to uh, take a look at what was biblical and what was not and there had been the purge of Josiah and the things that he was doing and then just shortly, just a, few, a couple of decades later, uh, they grow more wicked. The Babylonians come in and destroy the temple. They destroy Jerusalem. 
they take the the very best of of Israel, haul them off to Babylon. They leave some farmers and agricultural people to continue to grow things in Israel so they can pay tribute and provide food to, to Babylon. But by and large, uh, Israel as a, as a nation ceased to exist. Their heritage was gone. And, and what we then see is the fact that um, you see these uh, Jewish scribes trying desperately to, uh, to maintain, to hold on to some remnants of, of tradition and belief. And to do that, that's when we believe that most of the Old Te- Testament was actually written. The, the, that's one of the reasons, for instance, that in, uh, the, in their belief that we've got to conflate who King David was and make him greater and greater and, and more expansive than he was. And again, we're really trying to preserve Israel. So to do that, that's when certainly most of uh, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Chronicles is all being written a couple of centuries after it act had actually happened as they tried to hold on to who they were as a people. And we believe that even most of Torah, most of uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus is actually written then and assembled not so much by Moses sitting in a cave writing it, but whatever writings, limited writings they had from Moses or Joshua um, was now being written longhand out by the scribes in, in uh, sitting in Babylon. And they're going to add in that uh, Near Eastern flavor, there was no harm for a historian to add stuff to the narrative. And they added a lot. And when we talk about some of the stuff that we find in the Old Testament, we may need to be a little quicker to recognize this probably came from scribes sitting on the banks uh, outside uh, uh, Babylon having to reconstruct this thing from what little scraps that they had. Uh, and it might explain some of the things certainly that, that we read. Okay, So one of the problems that we have then is trying to determine authorship. One of the reasons, for instance, why we think that there were probably two or three authors of Isaiah, for instance. Uh, so Because each one has a different flavor and it's being compiled, at the very least, by different ghostwriters who are putting Isaiah's name on his things, but maybe trying to expand a little bit or, uh, or put together different writings from Isaiah at different times. Um, it's a little harder uh, to go ahead and understand those kind of things. So authorship is, is a little bit tougher. Okay. Uh, now, here's where it gets even more fun, and that is that we have this um, ancient and modern translators, because ultimately now, as you get the Adamic language, remember, coming out of Garden of Eden and Noah and all that, and then we get this development of Aramaic, and and those records are going to be together, and then whatever... The, the, the writers in Babylon put together, it's going to be assembled into Greek in, in the Septuagint about 400 BC. So it's going to, so now we have the problems of translation. You know, yes, this is what Moses might have said or done, but now it's going through one set of scribes 
in Babylon, and then another set of translators uh, sitting in Alexandria, uh, 70 writers putting the Septuagint together in Greek, and you know, and so you're getting this straining process, you know, and it really does become though, like those ta- days. Remember as kids when you would you'd play the game gossip, and one would whisper in one ear, and and then you'd have to go whisper the same thing to somebody else, and they would go whisper to somebody else, and they'd go whisper to somebody else, and the original story is nothing like the one four or five or six people down the road that they end up hearing. That's the Old Testament, that it went through one ear to another translator to a scribe to another translator by, you know, and some of that was oral and what was added and, you know, so uh, I know I'm I'm undermining a little bit how we look at at the Old Testament, but I think it's necessary if we're trying to reconcile uh, why it is that we feel such a different tone in some places, not all, but in some places in the Old Testament, and that is uh, modern the, the translators. And then we get even more modern translators. So, so now we get this filtering scripture. Now, I want you to give you just an idea that if you sit today and you're and you're reading today's Old Testament, you sit down to read, I don't know, a book, a, a, a chapter, you know, in First Kings or where we are in Exodus. Uh, you're going to sit down and read it. We need to keep in mind that for us to have that scripture in front of us. Um, Some of the ideas about how you frame that uh, actually began with some of the ancient Greeks and then we get into Plato and Socrates and you go, Plato? How did Plato Plato end up in my Old Testament? Um, How did that happen? Well, it's, it's a little bit of a torturous thing but stay with me for just a moment. We go from Plato, uh, whose writings uh, filled the ears of St. Augustine in the 4th in the century AD. Um, early on in his life, he says he listened to a lot of the early church fathers, uh, like Origen and Athanasius. But as he went along, he, as he got older, he loved the writings and the philosophies of Plato. And, he, and he's very open in the fact that he, he loved uh, the writings of Plato. Okay? So, and and I'll, I'll show you why that's important in just a second. So from Augustine and, and the, the things that get into the Vulgate, which was the Latin translation you know, of the Greek, that was the translation of the Hebrew, which is the translation of the Aramaic. Okay, now it's going to John Calvin, one of the reformers, and from Calvin to Martin Luther. And 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 for these two, they're in the process of casting off anything scriptural as well as tradition-wise that would smack of the Catholicism and authoritarian, you know, and and it's about faith in Christ and uh, and and so. Martin Luther is very, very much in the ear of uh, William Tyndale as he is putting together the first translation into English of the Bible, and he was a very devout Luther follower by his own admission and by the by admission of his uh, autobiographers. Um, and so there were times then that they would look at things in 
the Old Testament and the New Testament and then how you translate a word would depend on your philosophical background. And I'll show you I'll show you that in a second. It's kind of cool. Okay. Um, so Tyndale is going to write the Old and New Testament and then when the King James uh, people in the King James Version, they're going to borrow about somewhere between 70 to 90 percent of Tyndale in the writings of the King James Version, which uh, we use in the English part of the church. Uh, we're pretty much now the only ones in the entire Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that still use the King James Version. The, the Spanish Version, the Portuguese Version, is drawing on other versions, not King James. Um, but this Tyndale thread then goes to King James, uh, and then that King James version is then going to, uh, to frame this view. Okay? And, and so, what view are we talking about with Calvin and Luther and that gets into Tyndale? Well, it's a, it's a belief in an angry, sovereign, distant God. This is Plato. And, and the mythology that goes with Plato that is trickling down here all the way down here and everything it's an angry sovereign distant God who has to be stuck dealing forever with uh, unworthy mortals that can never get it right and so God has got to be angry and frustrated all the time um, and and what's he going to do with them? And so it's, uh, and so let me give you, let me give you just one example of, of how that works. Okay. So, for instance, uh, we're going to be talking uh, probably some today, uh, more next week, and when we as we get into part two of the provocation of God is what we're is what we're talking about, what we're getting to. Um, I want you to see the difference. So in the um, in the writings then of uh, the standard English version of uh, the Old Testament, it's going to say, for 40 years, God says, I load that generation, that, that first generation of the, uh, the children of Israel in the wilderness, I load that generation, loathed. And said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. And you get this, and it, and it trickles even more in that, even in translating Paul's words, coming through Tyndale and, and all of that. Therefore I was provoked, he says, with that generation, and I said, they always wander in their hearts and they have not known my ways. They are, they always go astray. I loathe them. I was provoked by them. Well, again, as we were talking about earlier, if you are a parent who has been provoked and you're reading about a God who was provoked, you can see the angry God and you can see the angry God having to deal with these recalcitrant kids that just won't get it right. Well, let me give you one example. So, so one of the ways that I try and push back against this a little bit is that I go looking for other versions. And there, there is some wonderful versions of the Old Testament that actually comes through the framing of 
those that are, are uh, from a Near Eastern tradition, and so it's an Aramaic version of the same thing, but they have in mind uh, the traditions that they know, and they have in mind uh, also understanding the people, and they don't have nearly as much of the Calvinistic uh, way of seeing God as a distant, angry God. They see it more the way that pe people in the Near Eastern world would understand it. And listen to the difference when you get to their version of it. In Aramaic, translated to plain English, 40 years I was wearied with that generation. And I said, it is a people that forgets their heart and they have not always known my ways. Well, brothers and sisters, there's a gap between for 40 years I was wearied versus 40 years I loathed them. This, is, this borders on hatred. Wearied says, I love them, but they're driving me nuts. <laughs> now, as a parent, have your, have your kids ever wearied you? I'll bet they have. That makes more sense. So when, when I look at things like provoked, I'm trying to say, is it really provoked? Is that really what we're talking about? Or when I think about it, if I translate in my head after looking at this Aramaic version and saying, I can understand very clearly even Jesus of Nazareth being wearied with a people that forgets their heart. Wow, this one is, they haven't known my heart. He says, no, they forget their, their own heart. They know this in their heart. You know better, right? Uh, and they have not known my ways. Basically saying, comma, because if they did, they would be different. They would change. And I'm wearied because they're that way. Well, if I'm going to read how God reacts to as we talk about next week, how God reacts uh, in, the, in the instances with uh, manna and in the providing water, and it says that he was provoked, and then he's provoked again uh, when, they, when he gives Moses all of the temple instruction and how to build a temple, and Moses comes down off the hill with that, and they are, and they are involved in all kinds of the golden calf and all the chicanery, and God was provoked. If I'm looking at it from an eye of weariness, changes the context uh, completely. So how to, so, so, if that's what we're doing, if we're going to look in this um, year uh, at at the Old Testament, let me remind everybody again uh, some of the resources that I I would suggest help quite a bit. So here's some of the resources that I look at. And I would suggest that when you look at the Old Testament, either this semester or certainly when we get into Come Follow Me in January, here's just a, a sampling of some of the, uh, the resources that I look at. Uh, certainly we have our own uh, scriptures that we're drawing from, and that's not just looking at the Old Testament, but also looking at what the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants is also saying, and the Pearl of Great Price is saying about that same Old Testament experience. Um, 
and and so we have that added light and knowledge for which we're uh, very grateful okay but there are other tremendous sources that we need to be open to taking a look at when I'm looking at something here I'm almost always drawing on uh, the NRSV, the New Oxford Annotated Bible, because I want to see, because that usually frames it a little bit better, and it's a little less outside kind of the King James uh, version. Uh, so it's usually a little bit more uh, accurate on, on some things. Um, also, I found another wonderful resource that I've been using this past year. Uh, Robert Alter, who has been invited to speak at BYU and talk about his translation process. He's a, he's a Jewish translator, very, very fluent in, in ancient Hebrew. And in his writing of the five books of Moses, his translation, Robert Alter's, is of that, of that book. And so looking at his reaction to those passages as a Jewish man and as a Jewish scholar becomes incredibly, incredibly helpful. Um, we also have at our disposal uh, Joseph Smith's translation of, particularly of the Old Testament and, and uh, all the things that he had there. So um, I love being able to look at that as well. So sometimes like looking at this word that we were today, provocation, and as we talk about it next week, I drew information from all of these sources to be able to look more clearly. Now, in the time we've got remaining, let me, let me suggest uh, one more wonderful source uh, on this, and it's one that I use just about every week. Um, it's important to know the words like provocation in the Old Testament. And in order to do that, it's helpful. I, I use a resource that I found other BYU scholars have also used called the Blue Letter Bible. The Blue Letter Bible is going to break down uh, every word in the Old Testament and the New Testament and it gives what its root word is and where it comes from the Greek or the Hebrew and what the Greek or the Hebrew means and every other place that it's used in the Bible it's you know it's a kind of a deep dive into a verse or into a word uh, that is incredibly helpful to try and understand um, so before we before we finish today I want to give you one example of of something drawn from the Blue Letter Bible and how it can potentially be able to um, uh, open, open your view up on some things. So let's take just one example. Amos 3.7. If you're ever a missionary uh, or if we ever looked at these kind of things, this is one of those little verses on the Old Testament buffet. We're going to go in and grab. We pull out and use it. We don't read the rest of Amos, but we do like Amos 3.7 because that helps with our narrative. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Now we tend to look at that and say, God talks to prophets. Amos says God talks to prophets. So this is proof that God talks to prophets. Let's get out of it. Let's get out of Amos and, and back to our narrative. Very helpful verse, okay? Without and and with and if we do just that, we will miss a couple of things compliments of the Blue Letter Bible. And it's, it's this. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret. The one. Secret. It's not plural. It's the secret. And you go, oh, well, what is that? Blue Letter Bible then exposes that the, the, uh, the Hebrew word for secret that is used in the writings of, of the Hebrew Bible is the word sod. You say, 
So what does sowed mean? Ah, well, it's helpful to have the idea, what is, it, what is sowed? He will revealeth his sowed unto his servants, the prophet. Ah, well, okay, let's find out. Well, here's, here's what the Blue Letter Bible tells us. That sowed actually means counsel or counsel or assembly. It's a divine circle and a company that speaks together as a group. We have a wonderful example of a sowed in the first chapter of the Book of Mormon. Because Lehi, when he has his vision and he's taking up, he sees not just God talking to him, but he sees the sowed, the heavenly council. So he's being, there are a number of people there that God is counseling with, talking with. The prophet is being drawn into the sowed. It's part of the council. Uh, can, you imagine, can you imagine, for instance, uh, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles is sitting and talking about uh, uh, a thorny issue, for instance, and they invite you in the middle of that discussion, they invite you to come join and listen in. And you hear the discussion, and then they give you a charge based on what we've discussed. Will you now go do this or this or this? You go, oh, okay, well, I'm going to do that well. Why? Because I know, I, I heard the sowed, I heard the council, and now I know kind of what their thinking is, and I'm going to go from there, okay? Now, so now you go back and go, oh, surely the Lord God will do nothing except he reveals his counsels unto his servants, the prophets. They have heard the discussion, they have an understanding of what the issues are. Isn't that wonderful? That comes by virtue of going back to and being able to search it out in a place like the Blue Letter Bible to get the fuller, richer understanding of a verse. And, and that's why, again, as we talk next week about provoking, and, you'll, and, and if you can see what it means in full context, you're going to understand more clearly why it is that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. Um, it's just that at this point, and I'm going to... I want to finish kind of with this. So, as we prepare to, to launch into studying the New Testament, or the Old Testament, I want you to keep a couple of things in mind. Two important questions. Number one, ask yourself as you're reading a verse, and you're not quite sure if this could be symbolic or literal or, or whatever it is, would a loving parent do this? As I look at it, do I have some problems with striking a man dead just because he was going to touch, try and steady the ark? Does that seem like something that a loving parent would do? Or is that something that maybe a scribe might possibly have put in there just to, to remind everybody how sacred and powerful the temple uh, ornamental things were? Would a loving parent do this? Secondly, when you read a verse, does this scripture inspire me? Does it fill me with peace? Or does it leave me kind of cold? In other words, because I'm, I'm, I, myself, I have a hard time, I guess, when, with, uh, as we're going to talk about, that when, when uh, Moses discovers uh, the, the golden calf, that he's going to find out who's on the Lord's side, who, and if they're not, according to the record, they strike dead 12,000 people because they wouldn't step over the line and support him. Well, that's pretty harsh. I'm not sure a loving parent would do this. 
and I'm not, and it, and it does leave me cold. So I'm saying maybe there's something else here that we're being taught by this verse, the importance of. Uh, and may, maybe that's exactly what happened. But maybe there's something else going on that we need to take a closer look at. Uh, and maybe it's a little different than what we suspected that it was. So anyway, thank you for hopping on to, to class today. This is going to be a great semester. I love looking at the Old Testament. I love looking at the Old Testament through the eyes of all the resources we have available to us. And that by so doing, we're going to be able to understand a little bit more clearly what we're reading. And you'll find that the Old Testament is far more rich, far more powerful, uh, and far more inspiring than sometimes we have uh, tended to look at it by just trying to read it and take everything literally in there and then being left cold by it. Uh, I bear you my testimony that it's true, that uh, the Lord will guide us in our understanding of this most important scripture. And I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.